Welcome, welcome, grab your seats. So, um, exciting, exciting to, to be back after two weeks kind of over Zoom and online and all that sort of stuff. So, finally back face to face and hopefully we don't have to do this again, uh, although we've said that before, but um, hopefully this is the end of it. Um, we've got a lot of things to kind of cover today and um, this topic is pretty heavy. Um, I guess it's something that's, that's heavy for me. I feel like... Um, yeah, this is a, a strong topic, or one of the challenging ones. We've been kind of doing a challenging series, and uh, they've been pretty hard-hitting topics. So before we start, let's just um, start off in a word of prayer. Father, we just want to thank you for tonight, Lord. We thank you that we can gather uh, all together face-to-face once again, Lord. We pray that tonight you're in the midst. We pray that you speak and that you say all that you want, Lord. I pray that you would hide me and that you would... Um, touch people's hearts, Lord, and, and challenge people's um, thoughts, Father. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. So the topic that we are discussing tonight is titled The Wrath and Holy Hatred of God. Right. And by that, t- by that title, you're like, oh, my God, this is legit. And uh, I think it is pretty legit. <laughs> so firstly, I like to start off by kind of defining what the topic is, right? And um, I guess the main gist of it is the, the wrath side to it tonight, and we'll tackle both of them. Um, but the definition that I kind of saw online that made the most sense and kind of described the topic best, um, it wrote it this way. It said, wrath is defined as the emotional response to perceived wrong and injustice. And as I was looking further into this, there is a vast difference between the... Wrath of God and the wrath of man. Because you have God's wrath, which is always justified regardless of what happens. And you have the wrath of man, which is never holy and is rarely ever justified. So as we tackle today, there are four main points that I want uh, to speak on today. So firstly, what is the wrath of God? Um, Secondly, the comparison between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, Thirdly is... God's wrath um, is an action of his love, and we'll we'll explain what that is. And just lastly, how God's wrath is justified, um, is satisfied in Jesus. So firstly, um, the the big question of what is the wrath of God, right? And there are a number of um, words in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that translate the wrath of God as anger, right? So that's the word that is frequently used and translated um, as But most generally, God's wrath is a response to human disobedience. And there is rarely no good way to kind of lighten up the wrath of God. Um, It's essentially um, an angry response on God's part to human disobedience. Um, Yeah, there's kind of no way to sugarcoat that. That's literally what it is. And if you understand tonight, if you come into this and you understand uh, the wrath of God as vengeance then you might not be able to reconcile what we're, we're trying to talk about today. But the wrath of God is simply his righteous judgment against sinful humanity. Romans twelve nineteen says this. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And, you know, when we read the Bible and it says, Jesus tells us, you know, um, 
love your enemy, feed the hungry, overcome evil with good, love your neighbor as yourself, all of those good things that we um, read. But this verse also tells us, as well as those things, to not be the mediators of the wrath of God. It's not our responsibility to bring this upon anyone else. That's purely God's job and his job to do alone. He says, vengeance is mine. We are to love our enemies and leave God to do what he righteously and justly will do at the end. So reading the comparison between the Old and the New Testament, you know, reading the Old Testament, we can get the idea of um, that God is harsh, that God is violent, that God is evil, that God is not fair, um, that God is wrathful. But um, while God, you know, you know, read the New Testament, we're like, you know, this God is so kind compared to this, you know, Old Testament God, back in the day God. Um, you know, we see the New Testament as kind, loving, patient, all of those nice words, as we like to say. Um, but then we read the Bible and it tells us God is the same yesterday, today and forever. Um, so how can this be? This doesn't kind of make sense. And sometimes we can say, you know, this God and this God don't line up um, together. And I want to look at two verses, one from the old, one from the new. Um, the first one is from Nahum 1.2. And it says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord take the, takes vengeance on his adversaries. And keeps wrath for his enemies. That's the Old Testament, the evil, mean God that we like to sometimes see. And we got Romans 1.18. And it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteous suppress the truth. And then now we have these kind of two verses that essentially line up the two theologies together. You've got the Old Testament and the New Testament God. They line up because it's saying the same message in the Old and the New Testament. Both verses are outlining, um, in both the Old and the New, they're outlining that God um, shows his wrath against sin. And if you refer back to the beginning, as I was kind of mentioning, we mentioned that the wrath of God is defined as the emotional response to the perceived wrong and injustice. And the definition of this actual word doesn't change in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and neither does God himself. Because God's view on sin doesn't and never will change, regardless of what point it is in history. Because in the New Testament, however, you see that Jesus says in John three seventeen, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And what we have to understand here is, the period of Jesus' ministry or his time on earth was a window for salvation, was a window for gospel declaration, and for death for sins. So essentially, if you look at the Old Testament, it is preparation for Jesus. It is allowing the coming of Jesus to this earth to show the reader that there is darkness, sin is so horrific, and the wickedness of man and the very need of a saviour in our lives. And the Old Testament, yes, might be violent, it might be bloody, but nothing was done outside of God's perfect righteousness and justice. And now we live in a time where we've had Jesus and we still have Jesus, who is literally the incarnation of mercy, of grace, of forgiveness, and is telling the world, this is what's available to you. I've sent my only begotten son that whoever believes shall not perish, right? He sent us this embodiment of all these different things that we read about. 
And you might still say, well, that's not really fair. And my question to you is, have you read the book of Revelation? Like, because you can look at the Gospels and you're like, oh, this lovey-dovey God is so nice. But then, mate, read, read Revelation because it's very close to the Old Testament. You know, you see this side of God as well as the, the kindness and all of it, right? God is a combination of all of those things in one. Because if you think the, the Old Testament is all doom and gloom, um, I certainly hope you don't have to live through that future judgment. Um, and I don't want us to look at the Old Testament and, and say, oh, it's just an angry God. I want us to look at the New Testament and the Old Testament combined together. And um, we're going to delve deeper into um, Jesus and his coming on the earth and, and how that held the wrath of God, um, which was meant for us. And we'll explore that further. So the point um, that I want to address about God's wrath is his love in action against sin. I'll start off by reading Romans three twenty three to 27. But just, just bear with me, right? It's a heavy topic and it's very kind of deep and whatnot. So just... Just bear with me. I'm sorry if I'm boring you or anything like that, but just stick with it, right? Romans 3, 23 to 27 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who had faith in Jesus. I think everyone in this room knows that we are sinful human beings, right? And I think that most, if not all, non-Christian people will tell you that they've done some wrongdoing in their life of some sort, right? You don't have to call it sin, but some wrongdoing in their lives. But I want us to know that the reason why people don't care about sin is because they don't care about God. When you fall short of the standard, what is our reaction? What is our response to that? You know, if we're comfortable in our sin, that's a big danger. But when you fall into sin, what is your reaction towards it? Because the only way someone is going to understand how, sin, how horrific sin truly is, is to understand who the sin is being committed against. And you see, there are many churches today moving away from focusing on God and, and Christ being the center of attention and messages. And they're just focusing on the person who is giving the message or the leader of a particular church. But that is so dangerous because it literally blinds people. You know, people no longer fear sin because they no longer fear God or understand God. Sin is horrific because of the glory of whom it is being committed against. And there is a wave of people today who believe that, you know, God is a God of love and not a God of judgment. And they say things like, you know, I can't, I can't believe in a God that is, you know, wrathful or is, you know, um, destroyed um, these people in the Old Testament or has done this or has done that. They say, I don't believe in a God because dot, 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 whatever it may be. right? And as we all know that, yes, God is love. We knew that since Sunday school and coming through Sunday school. And we know that in him there is no darkness, as we've also been taught. But God is love, therefore he must hate. He hates sin. Psalms 5, 4-6 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. 
you hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. This might be a shock to us, but you know the saying that says God hates the sin but loves the sinner? I'm sorry to break it to you, but that's a lie. This is not biblically accurate. Because in Proverbs 6 to 19, it says, and I'll explain this further. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongues, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devices wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Notice that in this passage, it does not include just things that God hates. It includes people as well. Because sin cannot be separated from the sinner except by the forgiveness available in Christ alone. And I hope you just breathe a sigh of relief because you're like, this guy's about to speak heresy, but um, I will not. <laughs> the Bible clearly teaches that God loves the people of the world. We have John 3.16. And God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 18.32 says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is all proof of God's love. God wants what is best for his creation. And at the same time, he hates evil doers. Because before we knew God, we were enemies of God. But it also tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But what happens to someone who refuses God's love, refuses to repent, and stubbornly clings to their own sin? The answer is there is not much choice. God is going to judge that person because God must judge sin. And that means judging the sinner themselves also. You see, the righteous and the wicked both have choices to make. And they both make different choices, which leads to different destinies. One will see the ultimate expression of God's love in heaven and the other will know the ultimate expression of God's hatred. As human beings, we can't love with perfect love, nor can we hate with perfect hate. But God can both love and hate at the same time perfectly because he is God, because he's the perfecter of all things. He can hate without committing a sin. Or even having sinful intent, let alone committing a sin. So God can hate the sinner in a perfectly holy way and still lovingly forgive the sinner at the moment of repentance and faith. Because to be a God of love, he must be a God of wrath. For example, I want you to think of the closest person in your life. You know, your kid, your partner, your um, sibling, your parents, whoever it may be, right? And you see someone who is beating that person up, right? You see them abusing or hurting that person. For example, I won't speak on your behalf, but if, it, if that was me, I would be so mad. I would probably go up and push that person away and I, I probably would hit them, right? Um, and that's just my reaction towards that um, situation. And that's not because my personality wants to hurt that person. I hate fighting. I don't like 
hitting anyone or doing anything. Ah, it's not like I do this on a regular basis. I don't. Um, but it's not within my personality. I, I dislike that. But it's my retaliation towards wrongdoing. That's how I personally react. And you can't say, oh, God doesn't get upset about sin. No, he does. And if he didn't, then that wouldn't actually mean that, wouldn't mean that he loves you. God has to react to sin. He does all things for his glory, right? God does everything for his own glory. Therefore, God rules in a way that brings him maximum glory in every aspect of everything that happens. And on hearing this, you might think that, you know, this God sounds a bit, you know, a bit arrogant. Like, who are you to say you're kind of doing things for yourself and you're doing this for your glory? And, you know, a bit, bit prideful there, you might be thinking. But it sounds arrogant to our ears because we are sinful people and we've fallen short of that standard. But God can't, um, but God can say such a statement because he is perfect and in him there is no sin. And if a human being was to say that, we would think of them as arrogant because they fall short of that standard. But there is no ill intention in God, whether in word or in deed. So God must act justly and judge sin for what it is, which is evil. I'll give you um, an example of, of, of justice that I really liked by um, R.C. Sproul. Um, and he, he was a, a professor at a Bible school early on. And he was uh, teaching the class and um, on, on kind of during the semester or whatever. And he was explaining and talking. And at the very end, he told them, you know, we have this assignment coming up. Here is the assignment. Here is the due date. Um, this is what you need to do. This is when you need to return it. And time goes by and now it's the due date of that particular assignment and the, the class are handing their papers in, their assignments in. But then there were 25 students who didn't have their papers. They didn't have their assignments ready. And the students were terrified and they said, Professor, we're so sorry, you know, the transition between high school to um, university was really difficult and we're still, you know, trying to understand how to manage our time and to do all of these things. Just please don't fail us. Um, so the uh, professor replies, you know, he's saying, you know, oh, fine, I'll give you two more days, but, you know, this is the final time. You can't do this again. Um, you've got two days. And they're like, of course, pro uh, pro uh, professor, you know, we won't do this again and we'll, we'll hand in the um, assignment. And they did. After two days, they handed in the assignment. And later on, there was another assignment. He gives them the assignment. He gives them the due date. Um, and he tells them, go ahead, go and do it. And a few weeks later, when the assignment was due, now 50 students turned up um, without their assignment papers or their assessments. And he asked them, you know, why not? Why don't you guys have this uh, assignment done? And they said, oh, there are heaps of mid-year exams. Like, we're so busy. Everything is so packed. We're sorry, but it won't happen again. And the professor uh, replies and he tells them, okay, this is the very last time. Like, I'm serious. This is actually the last time I'm going to do this. And he gives them two extra days. They come back. They hand in their assignments and it's great. Um, and the students were so happy at that point And they were saying, you're the best teacher in this university. Like, we love you. They started making songs about him and saying how good he was. And a few weeks later, there's a final assignment of the year. And he tells them, this is what's supposed to happen. This is the due date. Go ahead, do it, and come back to me. And this time, 150 students come back without doing their assignments. 
And uh, some people did, but there's 150 who didn't. And um, one of the students comes in strolling with a big smile on his face. And he's like, hey, how's it going, Professor? How you doing? I hope you're doing well. And he's kind of chatting to him pretty casually. Um, and he tells him, sorry, I don't, I don't have that assignment. Um, but just give me two days, yeah? Like, thank you very much. Just give me two days and I'll get it done. And the professor uh, replies and he tells him, oh, you don't have your paper with you. You get an F. And the whole classroom went, oh, like, what? That's crazy. And they were so shocked. And the professor then asks the whole classroom of um, students and he tells them one by one, where is your paper? Where is your paper? Mary, you don't have your paper? F. Daniel, you don't have your paper? F. Emmy, you don't have your paper? F. And he started grading all these students who didn't have their papers, kept giving them all Fs, right? And the students, after hearing one after the other, they're like, oh my goodness, this is not fair. How can you be doing this? And the professor took this opportunity to ask one of the students, didn't you hand your last two assignments in late? Your, your previous ones were late and now this one is late and you're saying it's, it's not fair? And the, the student says, yes, sir, like, that's true. This is what I did. And the professor says, okay, I'm going to give you justice, which is exactly what you're asking for. I'm going to grade an F for your last two assignments as well as this one. Isn't that what you're asking for? You're asking for justice, right? So I'm going to grade you F for all your assignments. And um, the student was kind of like, Shocked and didn't have anything to say at that point. And you see the point? This is a true story, by the way. This is R.C. Sproul kind of telling the story. Um, and you see, by this story, we see that the students got used to the professor's grace. The grace that he kept giving them. They got used to it. First, they appreciated it. Then they expected it. And lastly, they just demanded it. And is that the justice that we want? Because if that's the justice we want in our lives, that we cry out, you know, when, when something goes wrong in, in, in our lives, we run to God and we say, God, this is not fair. How can you do this to me? If God was truly, you know, righteous, and he is truly righteous, but if he was to act in that moment based on what you're asking for, then we would all be in hell. Like, because we're all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God, of the standard of God. We should be. And if we were all thrown in hell, God would still be just and rightfully um, so in whatever he does. But because God is perfect in all he does and there is no darkness in him, he's revolted by sin and evil cannot exist in his presence. Therefore, one day he must eliminate sin altogether from the face of the earth. And that is reflected on his, upon his wrath on judgment day for those who do not belong to God. And if God didn't judge sin, then he wouldn't be God. Because you see, God's love for his glory motivates his wrath against sin. God's wrath is not angry retribution against those who have offended God. Rather, it's the, um, the, the, the righteous judgment against those who do evil. And to put things into perspective, you know, God, when he was creating the universe, he told the mountains, stay there and come no further. He told the oceans, stay there and come no further. He told the planets and the stars to work in a, in a particular rhythm and to not interfere with particular things in our solar system. And then when he says to you, a human being, come to me, I give you the free gift of life. And you say no to the creator of the universe who puts all of those things into our world. 
We reply no to God in that moment. Then understand that in the final judgment, it is impossible to ask God why. Because God's wrath on those who reject him is just. Even if the closest person in your life doesn't accept Christ in their life, then they still will be righteously judged by God. Because perfection cannot be faulted. And I've heard this example before of, um, you know, how come if a person hears the gospel once or a person who hears the gospel a hundred times, how, how is that fair for the person um, who hears once and the person who hears a hundred times? But the thing is, God knows in that if he's perfecter of all things and the creator of all things, he's given that person who heard the gospel once the one and only opportunity that person needed to accept the gospel and that person who hears the gospel a hundred different times needed a hundred different times to hear the gospel. It's not about judging things from our human minds and our human perspectives that we create our own justice in our own minds, but God's justice is perfect regardless of how we perceive it on earth. So he's going to judge us according to his righteous standards. And God's wrath against sinners is nothing more than giving them what they deserve. I understand this is an unpopular message, but it is true. And um, just kind of lastly, I want to touch on how the wrath of God was satisfied in Jesus, in Christ. Romans 2.5 says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So if you're sitting there and you're kind of like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. God is going to destroy me. Understand that God's wrath is poured out on sinners, not on those who are saved and are called by God. J.I. Packer has a really good um, summary of uh, this altogether. He says, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to the objective moral evil. And God's wrath is not something to be joked about. It's not something that we can skim over while reading. It's something to truly be feared. Um, It is to be feared because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It is to be feared because God promises eternal punishment for those who are apart from Christ. We are all objectively and morally evil and we do all deserve God's wrath. And if you're walking away from today and you're thinking that I cannot love a God like this, then you've made the the measure of um, standards based on human beings and not a perfect, holy just and wrathful God. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So literally tonight, the the biggest question that we should be having in our minds is not why God, but it is if God truly is just, how can he forgive me? How am I forgiven as a sinner who falls short of that standard every single day? Because we are all sinners and we are deserving of death. But on the cross, we see a contrast between God's love and wrath met in one person, and that is in Jesus. And we are not saved from sins because the Romans beat up Jesus and killed him a gruesome death. 
We are saved from our sin because Jesus became sin. And you might ask, what does this mean? And I've shared this um, in Easter, if you were, and if you remember, but I'll share it again with us tonight. Luke 22, 39 to 46. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane with Peter, John and James and, and Jesus all together. And it says this. And he came out and went as was custom to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And this prayer actually happens three times. It's mentioned on three uh, occasions in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. He prays this three times. He says, let this cup pass away from me. Let this cup pass away from me. Let this cup pass away from me. And sometimes we can misinterpret what this means and we can read it and say that, you know, Jesus is afraid of the Roman torture that is about to happen to him, of the whips, of the, of the crown, of all the different things that happen to Jesus. And so many people think that when Jesus is looking at this metaphorical cup, he's thinking about the cross in the sense of the, the torture. And, um, you know, that causes him to sweat blood because he's nervous and he's afraid and all of these things. But that's actually a misinterpretation of that verse. Because how is it that all the apostles but John and countless other martyrs um, across history, they went to, the, to a cross and some of them were upside down and they were singing hymns. They were full of joy and they were so happy at being crucified like their Lord. So how is it that Jesus the perfecter of all things and the son of God, how would he be afraid when his disciples weren't even afraid of the cross? Did they have more boldness than the savior? But we have to understand that Jesus wasn't sweating droplets of blood in the garden because of that cross. It was because he dwelt in the embrace of the father with perfect delight between one another. He had always been the beloved son of God in whom the father was well pleased. And he was fully aware of what was to come. Not the cross and the suffering, but the father's withdrawal when he was on the cross. Because on that tree, the father, God, withdrew his presence from his son. And he should have done that to us, but he put that on Jesus. On the cross, he said in Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemai sabatani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We are saved from our sins. Because when he was on that tree, all of, of, of our sins, past, present and future, were placed on Jesus at that particular point. And heaven turned away from the Son of God at that point. It was true abandonment of the Father. He turned away from His only Son because His Son became sin. His Father, God, abandoned His Son, Jesus, on the cross. And all of our sin was placed on Him. And He became the final and complete sacrifice for our sins. 
And in that moment, he was banished from the presence of God, for sin cannot exist in God's presence. And the separation from God that you and I should have experienced for all of eternity, the Son of God experienced in that moment on that tree. And then there wasn't just the negative withdrawal of God's presence from Christ, but there was the full force of God's wrath, of his holy hatred against sin and sinners, that as a holy God he must pour out, he poured out on his own Son. In Isaiah 53, 10, it says, And it pleased the Lord to crush the Messiah, to crush him under the full force of his wrath. And that was exactly what was in that metaphorical cup, as we spoke about. The wrath of the almighty God against every sin that we have ever committed. And he drank it down. Because he cried out at the end and he said, It is finished. He drank it all. He paid it in full. And he died. And on the third day, he rose once again. And it was by his power, by the Spirit's power, by the Father's power that he was raised on the third day. So today, whether you bless God or curse God, whether you love God or whether you hate God, I want us to understand that every knee will bow at the end. Philippians 2, 9 to 11 says, Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the end of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So whether we like it or not, every single knee on this earth, whether you believe God, whether you know him, whether you don't know him, whatever your relationship with him is, every knee is going to bow. And some will bow by the grace that is God given to us. And some will bow because he is God, whether they like it or not. But everyone at the end is going to declare that Jesus is Lord. And even the demons believe that Jesus was the son of God. And Jesus is coming back. But depending on which side of the fence you're standing on, there is either going to be good news at the end or there's going to be bad news. And for those who it's good news, they're going to say, great, God is here. Amazing. And for those who it's bad news, they're also going to say God is here because he is coming. But both of them have very different reactions. Revelation 6, 16. This is about judgment day. It says, They call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. I want us to understand that there is a judgment day. There is a heaven and hell And heaven is eternity with God. And I used to explain hell as eternal separation from God, which is partially true. But also hell is the wrath and justice of God. And it's not ruled by Satan. It is ruled by God. And in just quick summary before we finish up. If you're taking anything from tonight, I want us to kind of understand it in the summary, you know. We have all of humanity which is deserving of punishment. And a righteous God would correctly give us what we have earned. But God is also love. And he's provided a way of redemption, which is through faith in the atoning blood of his son, Jesus. The wicked who are still unforgiven, God hates. But, and that is important to understand, please understand me. God desires that the wicked repent of their sins and find refuge in Christ. For those who accept Christ's offer of salvation, his righteous judgment is satisfied by Jesus' sacrifice. 
They are brought from the kingdom of darkness and into a kingdom of light. Because from the moment you are born, you are on your way to hell. But when you accept Jesus, you are on your way towards the kingdom of light. But those who reject the offer of salvation will receive the justice they rightly deserve. And we will continue in the kingdom. Um, and sorry, and, and they will continue in that kingdom of darkness, right? If they don't accept Jesus. But God's desire is to, for all to be saved. But those who refuse will suffer the consequences of his wrath. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, that you are a loving, just, holy, righteous, wrathful God. That you are the perfecter of all things, Lord, and that you have planned everything out, Lord. That you have given your only son for us to die on the cross, Lord. And um, you sent us the best gift that we could ever receive, Lord. We thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. We thank you that you are a good God and that you are worthy of all our praise, Lord. Uh, Father, I just pray, Lord, for every heart in this room that um, nothing that I would have said would be taken as my words, Lord, but they would be taken as yours, Father. Um, I'm just a vessel and I'm just a person who's um, saying what you put into my heart, Lord. So I pray, Lord, that you convict. I pray that you challenge. And I pray that you touch hearts and meet them uh, where they're at, Lord. You know what every single person is going through, Father. And um, I pray that you uh, would have spoken tonight, Lord. Uh, we pray for, for your will to be done in our lives, Lord. And we thank you once again that we can meet uh, face to face, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.